text for the sermon this morning comes from Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, and we're going to be looking at verses 29 through 48 specifically. Last week we considered that the church is the holy Catholic church, that the barriers um, that were there in the old administration of the covenant of grace have been removed, and that the gospel is now uh, to be preached to both Jew and Gentile without distinction. And... uh, that end, uh, the Lord has brought uh, Peter and the Apostle Peter to the house of Cornelius, a uh, Roman centurion, an uncircumcised Gentile, but uh, a God-fearer. Uh, Peter and Cornelius have just met, and uh, Peter has uh, told Cornelius, after Cornelius bowed down before him, to stand up, for I myself am also a man. And uh, Peter, uh, uh, our text begins with uh, Peter asking uh, Cornelius for what reason uh, he has come to Cornelius' house. So we pick up our reading there in verse 29 of Acts chapter 10. This is the word of our living God. Therefore I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. I asked then, for what reason have you sent for me? So Cornelius Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour. Now the ninth hour I prayed in my house, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayers have been heard, and your alms are remembered in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa and call Simon here, whose surname is Peter. He is lodged in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. When he comes, he will speak to you. So I sent to you immediately, and you have done well to come. Now, therefore, we are all present before God to hear all the things commanded you by God. Then Peter opened his mouth and said, In truth, I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth through the, with the Holy Spirit and with power, who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. We are all witnesses of all things which he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. And God raised up on the third day and showed him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. While Peter was speaking, still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, 
Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized to have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then they asked him to stay a few days. Throughout church history, there has been the temptation to make the Lord's Supper a table of division and separation rather than a table of union and communion with Christ. This was one of the great sins of the Corinthian church when it came to them celebrating the Lord's Supper. And we read in, in 1 Corinthians eleven eighteen, Paul say these words, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Even Peter, who we read of in our text, who was eating and drinking with Gentiles at this time, was under the fellowship to, to was under the temptation to break fellowship with these Gentiles and to be at odds with them. Paul narrates for us in Galatians two uh, these words. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James. He would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Now, I don't know if uh, uh, Paul is talking about the Lord's Supper there, but he's certainly noting that even Peter the Apostle, Peter who had this vision that he should call no man unclean or, or common, was tempted to be divisive, was tempted to... Uh, uh, once again, bring barriers into the church of God. Yet it's impossible for us to have a divided Christ. Our text tells us that Jesus is Savior of both Jew and Gentile. We read in Acts 10.45 that after the Spirit fell upon the Gentiles, those who of the circumcision who believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. These circumcised Jews who, who believe are astonished that the Holy Spirit is being poured out upon these Gentiles. They're, they're not fathoming, they're not understanding what's happening. This is, their, their astonishment is in part because you have really no greater divide between two people than the division that once existed between Jew and Gentile. Remember that the Jews used to call the Gentiles dogs and all sorts of other derogatory words. The Gentiles were known for horrifically attacking and torturing the Jewish people because of their faith in God and their obedience to the commandments of God. There's indeed a, a great barrier between Jew and Gentile, yet the gospel destroyed that barrier. The gospel is able to overcome those barriers and divisions. Let us believe that it is able to overcome even the differences that we have, even as a, a small church here. And so as we prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper next week, let us do so by remembering that our Lord Jesus Christ is Savior of both Jew and Gentile. Remember what that means for us who are gathered here, who gather here each week. Now Peter opens his sermon to his gathering, uh, to, to this gathering of Gentiles in Cornelius' house by declaring an impartial Christ. 
That's one of the first that's the first point I want us to consider this morning, an impartial Christ. We read in verse thirty four, in truth I perceive that God shows no partiality, but in every nation whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. God shows no partiality. We've read that in Deuteronomy ten earlier. He treats everyone justly and rightly. He does not look at your skin color, your ethnicity, or your social status, but instead he judges the heart, for he knows the heart of everyone. Rather than judging by what one sees with their eyes and ears, or sorry, what they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, as every single human has to do because our, our judgment is limited, God judges with righteousness. He judges the heart. God's word is such that it is able to judge the, the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there's no one else who is able to do this but God. God shows no partiality. Many men are partial today. We all have our partialities and our prejudices. Do you have partial judges, partial bosses, partial husbands, partial wives, even partial parents? We all have our biases. And it's a sad reality that these biases are often a result of our sinful suspicions and prejudices. Like God shows no partiality. Instead, what do we read in our text? We read that he accepts people from every nation, every nation who fear him and work righteousness. We read that there are two things that the Lord cares about, the fear of his name and the working of righteousness. Now, Peter is is not saying here that uh, people are justified by their works, that God accepts them because of their works. We need to understand uh, Peter's statement in light of his entire sermon here. If you look down at verse 43, you see Peter say, whoever believes in him will receive remission of sins. To believe in Jesus Christ is what it means to rightly fear God. When one rightly fears God, he is accepted by God through the blood of Jesus Christ. He is justified by faith. Notice that the Lord remits the sins of those who fear him, those who have faith in him. What an incredible message that is so desperately needed today with all the divisions in society, with all the suspicions people have with each other. There are so many people looking for acceptance in this world, and yet they look for acceptance in all the wrong places and for all the right reasons. People look for acceptance for their sinful desires. They want society to accept their sinful actions as as being right and, and normal. There are so many people wanting and even crying out for acceptance. What do we read in our text? The Lord accepts those who fear him. God, and God's word declares those who are searching for acceptance. Stop, stop looking for acceptance in all these sinful and wrong areas. Look to, for acceptance in me by fearing me and responding to my gospel with faith and repentance. God accepts those who fear him. God shows no 
partiality. It did not matter that the Jews had the covenants, that they had the promises, that they were the chosen, special, chosen people God. The text tells us that God would not accept those Jews if they did not fear Him. However, He, he would accept Gentiles who believed in His Son. What an amazing truth for us that God shows no partiality between Jew and Gentile, but only, declare, only cares about those who fear Him. My faith and my hope in Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. The text says, whoever believes in Him will receive remissions of sins. So I ask, has God accepted you? On what grounds has God accepted you? Has God, do you believe God's accepted you because you are righteous in and of yourself? Well, I would urge you to examine what God's Word says and see here that God only accepts those who put their faith in Him for the remission of sins. And it's quite striking how much this passage mirrors what happened to Abraham in Genesis 15. Genesis 15, we are told that the Lord appeared to Abraham and, and pointed, uh, sorry, and, and promised Abraham that uh, his descendants would be as many as the stars of the sky. Even though Abraham had no physical descendants at this time, even though he was childless, childless. Abraham believed God. He believed that God would fulfill this promise and would give him this many descendants. We are told in Genesis 15, verse 6, and he believed God, sorry, he believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. Abraham, prior to being circumcised, prior to, to that particularly righteous act on his part, was accounted as righteous before God. Not because of what he did, but because of his faith. Abraham was justified by his faith in God. He believed in God's promises. And God continues to work the same way with man's redemption today. God accepts those who place their faith in him. The Gentiles in our passage had the Spirit poured out upon them, a testament to their living faith in God before they were baptized, before they had submitted themselves to that aspect of God's Word. They had that Spirit poured out upon them because they believed in God. Just like Abraham, they believed in God. That faith was accounted as Righteousness. God accepts those who fear Him because their trust is in His Son. Regardless of who they are, whether they're Jew or, or Gentile, God accepts those who fear Him. And what an amazing thing for these Roman Gentiles to hear at this time. To hear that the God of Israel is indeed an impartial God and that salvation is as open for the Jew as it is open for them. It's difficult to determine the exact time frame of the events of Acts, but roughly around this time, 
there was a great deal of strife between the Romans and the Jews. Caligula was the Roman emperor from 37 to 41 AD. And in the year 39, which is probably roughly around this time, uh, 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 the events here recorded for us in Acts 10, Caligula demanded that the Jews erect a statue of himself in the temple at Jerusalem. Understandably and rightly so, the Jews refused to do this. This was a violation of God's law. It was a violation of the the first and second commandments. And Caligula was going to force the Jews to go and do this. And he was going to do so with with military might. And and thankfully, the governor of Syria at this time, understanding that the political and civil repercussions of such a a forcing and and violation of, of the Jewish faith, delayed setting up this statue for an entire year and in and in God's providence in that in that year the the uh, Roman emperor died and it was eventually all all forgotten but at this time I had to understand that the the Jews and the the Gentiles would be at, very much at war uh, among themselves and there would be this great tension but in our text we find the gospel of Jesus Christ declares that God is impartial that God accepts those who fear him and so we see the gospel destroyed the barriers of sin and suspicion and the holy spirit brought people together in jesus christ as we wrestle with our sinful biases and prejudices let us forsake those and remember that our savior is an impartial christ that he accepts those who fear him And when we do so, we will know the blessing of the communion of the saints as we come to the Lord's Supper. That leads to the second attribute and work of Jesus that Peter proclaims in his sermon. We just saw that Jesus is an impartial Savior. Now, let's turn and consider that Jesus is a peace-granting Christ. He declares in verse 36, The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. The only possibility for true peace is through Jesus Christ. Ever since the fall of mankind into sin, this world has been thrust into war and violence. There are divisions between families right from the very beginning. There was that tension between Adam and Eve after they ate, where Adam blames Eve for what's happened. Sometime after that, Cain goes and kills his brother Abel. There are divisions between families. Husbands and wives are at war with each other. Marriages today often ending in divorce. There's division between parents and their children. There are fights even what, among what some would wrongly call the, the most innocent in society. There are, are fights among children. There are fights in the church between brothers and sisters in Christ. Man's breach of relationship with God flows down into breaches of relationship with all 
of us fellow humans. Sinful division infects every aspect of human society. It's a sickness that resulted from man's rejection of God. Man is at enmity with God, and so man is at enmity with himself. He has chosen sin over relationship with his Creator, and this breach of relationship with God has led to war and violence among men. We are very much aware of the issues of war and violence in our society. You know, the problem of the mass shootings in the United States, and depending on how you count, there have already been some 160 mass shootings in the United States this year. Many are, are calling for peace to be sought between Russia and Ukraine after already thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have lost their lives. And yet even more brutal than the war between Russia and Ukraine is the genocide that's been happening in Ethiopia for the last 30 years. Some 2 million people have been killed and buried in mass graves. And this continues all as a testament to man's sin and man's division and warring among himself. As a testament to man's enmity with God. And the unbelieving world sees all this division and war, and it yearns for peace. In an effort to pursue peace, in 1981, the United States General Assembly called for an International Day of Peace to be celebrated each September. The International Day of Peace is celebrated with peace, which is through the preaching of Christ Jesus must be a right pursuit of peace. And the right pursuit of peace will be not just a pursuit of peace, but it will be a pursuit of truth as well. There's no peace to be found in the empty mantra of postmodernism, which says, well, so long as you believe it, it can be true for you. There's no true peace to be found in, in planting peace poles or saying lines of poetry. These are lies and distractions from the only way to peace. It's time for the truth. And the truth of the matter is that man is a sinner, plain and simple. You are a sinner. If there's a a lack of peace in in society and in your life, it likely finds its root either in your own sin or in the sin of those around you. Jesus said that it is not that which goes inside of a man that defiles him, but what goes out, and he, out of man's heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. All these sins destroy peace and create division. And the only solution to this lack of peace is to believe in Christ who brings peace. He, in his death and resurrection, has provided redemption. He has paved the highway for men to be brought to peace with God himself. For there to be peace, the Prince of Peace must transform man's sinful and depraved heart. Next, 10, verse 36. We read, The word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. 
The only way for our divisions to be healed is through the gospel of peace, is through Jesus Christ. And as we come to the Lord's Supper next week, let us remember that our Savior is indeed a peace-granting Christ. As we remember that, we will remember how Jesus has reconciled us to Himself, how God has reconciled us to Himself. We who were once enemies of God, we who were once haters and blasphemers of God. God in His love reconciled us to Himself. As we remember that, let us seek to live in love with the family of God, with those who are in the church. Jesus is not simply an impartial Christ. He's not simply a peace-granting Christ. He is also a kingly Christ. Peter says right after declaring that God preaches peace through Jesus Christ, that He is Lord of all. Jesus is not simply Lord of those who believe in Him. He is not simply Lord of Christians, but He is Lord of every single person in this world, whether they are full-blown atheists, whether they are Muslims, whether they are Buddhists, whether they are Hindus. No matter who someone is, Jesus Christ is Lord over them. We sing about this in Psalm 72, where Christ's dominion extends from sea to sea. Now, this poses a, a great comfort to the believer. Jesus is able to be impartial, able to proclaim the gospel of peace because he indeed is Lord over all. He is Lord over this whole earth, and so his gospel can extend to every single ton, tribe, and nation. So many of the world's religions are very much divided by culture and ethnicity. Islam is dominated primarily uh, with an Arabic audience. Hinduism is primarily an Indian religion. Hebrew Israelites are African Americans. Judaism is primarily Jews. Yet because Jesus is the Lord over all, there are members of the body of Christ in every ton, tribe, and nation. Jesus is mighty to save whoever calls upon him because he indeed is Lord over all. He is the one true living God and so able to save all who fear him. And yet our kingly Christ should be terrifying to those who do not believe. Jesus Christ is Lord over everyone and he demands obedience. Paul Sorry, God, as Paul says in Acts 17.30, commands all people everywhere to repent and believe. Those who do not fear God, who do not repent, are acting in disobedience to their king. That means they stand in danger of judgment. After all, kings must deal justly with those who do not obey them. A king who has subjects obey him will, will be pleased to care and provide for those subjects. But a king who has subjects who say there is no king, as atheists do, well, that king will go forth and demonstrate that he does indeed exist and show them to be the fools that they are. 
Or those who, who say to the king, that there may be a king, but we will not serve him. We do not think he is just and worthy of our praise. Some slanderously say that about God. Well, that king will go forth and show those subjects how wrong they are. That he indeed is a God, a king of justice. We read in Scripture, the whole world will stand up on that last day and declare the goodness and the justice of God. Or those subjects who say we hate our king's laws, they are tiresome to obey, we will do what we want. The king will deal with those lawless people. He will not allow whether they accept him as king or not. And the same is true with our God, with Jesus Christ. Kings bring judgment upon those who disrupt their kingdom. Lawbreakers are punished. And the righteous, faithful servants are rewarded. And Jesus Christ will do all that for he is Lord over all. Peter says in our text that God commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that it is he who was ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Jesus as king is a judge of the living and the dead. In other words, no one will escape his rule as king. You who are alive, if Christ comes back before you die, will be called to give an account for all that you have done. And the dead don't get off the hook. Those who are dead, though they might think they have escaped the judgment of this king, will be resurrected and given new bodies, and they too will be brought before the throne of Jesus and called to give an account for all that they have done. Jesus is Lord over all. We have a kingly Christ, and no one will escape his judgment, whether his judgment is for good or for justice. I ask you this morning, what are you doing with the truth that Jesus is Lord over all? Are you living as though Jesus is your Lord and your King. There are many today who sadly simply take Jesus onto their life as though He is just one of their many accomplishments, one of their many diplomas, one of their many awards. You think that's what it is to fear and serve Jesus as Lord. To rightly fear Jesus as Lord is to accept Him and to live a life of repentance and godly living. Peter did not just say, but in every nation who fears, uh, but in every nation whoever fears Him is accepted, uh, accepted by Him. Peter didn't say, just say that. Peter Peter said, but in every nation, whoever fears him and works righteousness is accepted by him. In other words, it's not simply enough to profess Jesus is Lord with your mouth. That profession must also be accompanied by fruits of repentance, the fruits of godly 
living evidences of a life transformed by God's Spirit, evidence of the Spirit at work. Sanctification will always be part of one who is truly justified. These things cannot be divorced from each other. And it's a terrifying reality that there are many who say Jesus is Lord today, but live antithetically to his gospel. We even preach a gospel that is a perversion of our king's gospel. If you have not lived as though Jesus is Lord over all and Lord over you, know indeed that there is forgiveness to be found in him. The great gospel Peter declares it here is that whoever believes in him will receive remissions of sins. Jesus is certainly a king of justice, but he's also a king of mercy. He is a forgiving king. He is a just and gracious king to his subjects. In fact, he is so merciful that he has taken upon himself the punishment that his subjects deserved. He stepped off his throne, was humiliated by his very subjects, was crucified by them, so that he might purchase redemption. So what a joy it is this morning that we have a kingly Christ. And as we come to the Lord's Supper next week, let us remember that our King is Lord over each one of us and such and as such has redeemed us by His blood. Finally, we have a known Christ. This is where I want to conclude the sermon this morning. Peter says in his sermon, the word which God sent to the children of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, He is Lord of all. That word you know. It's likely that Cornelius and uh, the others gathered in his house knew something about Jesus Christ. The name of Jesus Christ was published abroad. Uh, we know from uh, uh, Philip's ministry, and I believe Acts 8, that uh, Philip had gone to Caesarea after he had uh, ministered to the Ethiopian eunuch. Cornelius likely knew something about Jesus Christ. That word you know. There's nothing hidden about the message of Jesus Christ. There's no secret knowledge. It is a plain, simple, and open gospel. Everyone can understand it. Everyone can know it. The apostles weren't interested in, in hiding the truth and keeping it for themselves. Christ wasn't interested in hiding the truth. No, he, he commanded that this word, this gospel, be proclaimed abroad, be proclaimed to everyone. And we notice the very public nature of the witness of Christ. Peter says, that word you know, which was proclaimed throughout all Judea, and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Baptism of Christ being a very public spectacle, where there were witnesses who could testify to the, the voice from heaven crying out, This is my beloved Son, and the Spirit descending upon Christ in the form of a dove. That was a public spectacle. Peter continues, saying, 
Jesus went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Jesus had very evident signs. He wasn't hiding his ministry. No, he, he pro- proclaimed the gospel openly, openly, both in word and deed, healing those who were sick, healing those who were oppressed by the devil. Peter continues his sermon, and he says, And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they killed by hanging on a tree. Again, a very public spectacle, a public trial of Jesus Christ. Being hung on a tree, being hung upon the cross. Peter continues, saying, Him God raised, upon, raised up on the third day and showed Him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. All that was public. But then, strikingly, things change after Jesus is resurrected. You see that there's something of, of a limited aspect, a limited witness to Christ after his resurrection. We read there again, Him God raised up, up on the third day and showed Him openly, not to all the people, but to witnesses chosen before by God, even to us who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. Why was not this a, a public witness to every single person? Why did Jesus only appear to his disciples, those who followed him? Although Christ indeed is a known Christ, there's nothing hidden about the message of Christ. There is a time to repent and believe. Jesus did not hide himself uh, from those who knew him and sought him while he lived. He showed himself openly to those who who followed him. But he did not show himself to all the people because they had their opportunity to believe while he was on this earth and yet they rejected him. They turned from him. They crucified him. They killed the Lord of glory. This ought to be a warning to all of us to be very careful with how we handle the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Christ, for a time, revealed himself openly to the Jews with signs and wonders. But after his resurrection, revealed himself to his church. There may come a time when the gospel may be deaf to your ears, may be dead to your ears. This means we have to urgently respond to the message of Christ and make use of our knowledge of Christ today. Today, today we ought to fear Him. The truth of Jesus Christ is a known truth. Many of you know everything that's necessary for to confess that we believe this gospel. Are you rowing? in your knowledge of Jesus Christ? Are you yearning to make that hunting Christ 
Does it excite you that Jesus is Lord over all and thus able to care and love His people? As we come, as we prepare to come to the Lord's Supper next week, let us be asking ourselves these questions that we might partake of the Supper worthily, resting upon the Savior of Jew and Gentile. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come before you thankful, Lord, for our Savior, which is Christ the Lord. We're thankful, Lord, 